Welcome to the Center. Um, as most of you probably know, the Center for American Progress is a progressive think tank. We seek to strengthen the progressive movement through the development of innovative policies, programs, ideas, and communication strategies. We have included reproductive rights within the overall CAP agenda pretty much since we got started at its beginning. And we do so both because we see reproductive rights as integral to an overall progressive agenda and because too often progressive rights issues have been used as a wedge to divide and undermine the progressive community. We see this as a problem not only for women and for the progressive movement, but for the country as a whole. Next week, as I'm sure we're all well aware, we'll be inaugurating a new president. And two days later, we'll celebrate the 36th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court decision that established a constitutional right to abortion. That decision also launched endless political battles over sex, gender, and reproduction that continue to plague us today. Excuse me. Ooh. So as we celebrate Roe and look to a new administration that promises to be more supportive of reproductive freedom, we thought it would be useful to have a conversation to, to explore several key questions. We want to know how will the new administration bring its themes of change, unity, and innovation to bear on complicated issues of reproductive rights? What do we believe should be the top priorities for reproductive rights, and where is the greatest potential for progress? And how will President Obama's promise of a new, less divisive political culture play out in the divisive area of reproductive rights? Are there areas of common ground, and are there areas that should never be compromised? So to begin to address these questions, I won't say answer them, since I don't think in an hour and a half we'll be able to do that. We've invited several, four, in fact, thoughtful and creative experts. Jessica Ahrens, on my far left, the director of the Women's Rights and Health Program at the Center for American Progress. James Wagner, president of Advocates for Youth. Gita Rao Gupta, president of the International Center for Research on Women and Malika Sadasar, Executive Director of the Rebecca Project for Human Rights. I think you all have their bios on the invitation, so I won't use up our time listing all their amazing accomplishments and expertise. And instead, I'll ask them to introduce themselves just by addressing this particular question. I want to know how you and your organization come to this conversation about reproductive rights. Who do you speak to and who do you speak for? And I think, representing the center, I'll let Jessica go first. Well, good morning, and thank you, everyone, for coming out this morning on this very cold morning. Um, as many of you, I think, are already familiar with our work, I'll, I'll keep it brief. But the Center for American Progress, uh, as Shira said, uh, sees these um, issues, reproductive and sexual rights issues, as integral to an overall comprehensive progressive agenda. And um, we look at the issues as expansively as possible. We have developed um, a framework um, where we see this agenda built upon four cornerstones, the ability to become a parent and parent with dignity, the ability to determine whether and when to have children, the ability to have a healthy pregnancy, and the ability to have safe and healthy families and relationships. And that you need to be thinking about all these areas if you're really going to do justice to the set of issues of reproductive sexual health and rights. Um, and so I think seen from that perspective, you, you can see uh, it, how it's a tool for coalition building and working um, across various progressive areas of concern. Um, it, you know, there's, uh, you know, if you, if you want to have a healthy pregnancy, you have to have a safe and healthy work environment and home environment. Um, you need to not have access to health care like uh, barriers uh, because of immigrants, restric restrictions on immigration status. You know, so there are a lot of different ways you can do this work in an intersectional way, and that's how we try to do it. 
Um, we try uh, to speak on behalf, we like to think that we speak on behalf of progressives overall, generally, um, and, and we uh, speak to uh, fellow advocates, uh, policymakers, the media, and the public at large. Um, Advocates for Youth uh, serves young people between the age of 15 and 24 uh, here in this country and globally. Uh, we fight, and unfortunately it's still a fight, for the rights of young people, the comprehensive education, information, and services. Um, we really do believe that young people are bellwethers. They're predictors uh, for, a cultural, for a culture's success or failure uh, in coming to grips with sexual health issues. And domestically, our societal critique poses a question. Why do U.S. teens have the highest rates of unintended pregnancy, birth, HIV, and STDs in the developed world? Our answer is that the U.S. has profoundly dysfunctional norms and policies around sexual health, with fear, shame, and denial competing with, and all too often trumping, science-based prevention, health and well-being, and basic common sense. In Western Europe, where countries have much better sexual health outcomes for teens and the population as a whole, sexual health is a public health issue driven by science and research. Here, it remains a controversial issue driven by politics, ideology, and religion. Finally, our vision for change is rights, respect, responsibility. The right to information and education that I referenced earlier. Respect for young people as part of the solution not stereotypes or scapegoats for being part of the problem. Respect for sexuality itself is a normal, natural, healthy part of being a teen, of being alive, of being a human being. And finally, responsibility. Uh, nobody's going to argue that young people need to make good choices, to take personal responsibility for important life decisions. But adults, government, and society must provide the tools, education, information, services, a place at the societal table. Responsibility is a two-way street. Advocates is a pro-choice organization that believes strongly abortion is part of reproductive health care and that for women, reproductive health care is primary health care and an essential component of health and well-being. Having said that, starting the societal conversation with abortion and keeping the focus there is far too limiting in terms of vision, politics, and public health. Thank you. First of all, thank you so much, Sheila, for inviting me to join this panel. It's a pleasure to be here among you. Um, we have a 30-year 30 30 history during which uh, the center that I lead, the International Center for Research on Women, has focused on promoting women's rights and gender equality. Our mission is to empower women, uh, promote gender equality, and uh, fight global poverty. We work primarily in the developing world and have uh, an interest in influencing U.S. policies as well as the policies of governments around the world and programs uh, so that they can better benefit uh, women and girls. Um, we, our tools are social science research. We believe strongly that all policies and programs must be based on evidence and not on ideology. Um, and so we use evidence to make the case for changes in policies and programs so that they can improve women's rights. We were uh, founded just after the first um, international conference on women in Mexico in 1975 um, and um, have a, a one of the our sort of our unique 
niche is that we link women's productive lives, their economic roles, with their reproductive lives. Uh, and talk about the ways in which those two intersect, which often get forgotten when we silo our conversations uh, by sectors or by specific issues. Uh, currently, we are working on sexual and reproductive rights through work on maternal health, HIV AIDS, adolescent sexuality, and violence against women, which in our definition uh, is all included within the rubric of reproductive health and rights. Um, we take a holistic approach to women's lives, so as I said before, and um, believe strongly that to invest in women is one of the best ways to achieve efficient economic development. And that economic efficiency can only be achieved if women's rights are guaranteed. So those are sort of the basic fundamental principles on which we base our work. Malika, you get to wrap up there. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Um, the Rebecca Project for Human Rights is a national advocacy and policy organization for vulnerable families. Um, and we really come into this conversation from the place of the right to mother and the right to mother with dignity. And so we see the reproductive rights movement and framework in the prison cells where our mothers who are behind bars are shackled during labor, delivery, and post-delivery. We see the reproductive rights discourse in the courtrooms where mothers lose their children because of maternal incarceration for nonviolent drug-related felonies. We see the reproductive rights language, vision, and discourse expanded into the small corners of treatment programs where mothers who are addicted must make an untenable Sophie's choice between their children and getting into a treatment program because the treatment program will not accept them with their children. So for us, in the way that we do the work, because we work with mothers at the margins who are systematically in places of struggle to be able to keep their families together, to provide health and safety for their families. The concept of mothering and mothering with dignity, we believe ought to be brought into how we talk about reproductive health and rights. That these mothers and who they are and what they struggle with to be mothers and to care for their children, they must be claimed by a reproductive rights movement. Their lives, their families must be claimed. And by claiming them and by pushing out the conversation of reproductive health and rights into also a conversation not only about abortion, but into a conversation about family and mothering, we are able to make more whole, more enriched, and more expansive the next generation of the reproductive health movement. Thank you, Malika. Well, I think you can see why we've, why we've invited the panelists we have, and I'm sure that we could spend all day um, listening to them. But what we're going to do here is I have a few questions. We're going to have a moderated conversation, and then we're going to leave enough time for questions from you in the audience. So just to start, um, as I mentioned, and as we all know, Inauguration Day is next week, and two days later is the 36th anniversary of Roe versus Wade. Traditionally, 
presidents and others have made speeches on January 22nd about reproductive rights and health and what they see going forward. So I'd like to ask you all, what do you want to hear President Obama say? What do you want him to do following January 22nd with regard to reproductive rights and health? And I think I'll start with James. Well, I think in addition to doing some quick things to redress the um, substantial damage to reproductive and sexual health that has occurred under the Bush administration, not only in this country, but globally, the war on international family planning and the like. Um, in addition to doing those things, I really think uh, President Obama should spell out a broad vision, um, outline some core principles, and then call on everyone in this country to play their role in uh, making change. Um, in my view, uh, those core principles should include that sexual health is part of public health, and public health policy needs to be guided by the science and what works, as we've all said. Secondly, that it is the right of individuals to make important life decisions for themselves, guided by their own faith, their own families, their own values. Um, third, the concept of personal responsibility tied to prevention, that we all have responsibility to prevent unintended pregnancy, STDs, etc. And finally, the principle of integration, that reproductive health is part of overall sexual health, which in turn is part of overall public health. Um, integration is the opposite of stigmatization and isolation that has characterized reproductive health policy for decades. That must end. Um, finally, at Advocates, we feel strongly that there's a great opportunity uh, for the new Surgeon General to publish a white paper on sexual health and sexual responsibility in the United States following upon a call to action that was published by Surgeon General Satcher back in 01 and then buried by the Bush administration. This would be a tremendous opportunity to engage the culture at large on a vision for an American future, a vision of a sexually healthy America. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I agree with James that we, what we need is a broad vision and I would just add to what James said, um, the fact that that broad vis vision must include um, sort of broader access to education, healthcare, um, and a broad range of social services. Um, we're also hoping that um, the statements that President-elect makes uh, will be around um, not just women here in the US, but women globally, um, and that he will use his consensus building sort of uh, skills to really broaden the debate so that, um, so that people understand that for women to truly have choice and the dignity to parent, to become parents and to parent um, with, with, um, with resources available to them um, is much more than just about abortion. But the right to choose is fundamental <coughs> to that. And how do, we, um, how do we make that discussion uh, broad enough so that people understand the linkages between poverty and access to healthcare? That people understand that um, just having rights available is not enough. You need access to services in a very pra practical, pragmatic way. Um, that some of the US policies that have been in play uh, need to be reversed, the global gag rule that has prevented organizations around the world from using their own money, if they're federally funded, um, to, um, to provide even information about um, abortion to their clients 
uh, is something that has to be reversed. Um, we would like to see in the HIV AIDS arena with regard to women's sexuality, um, some of those policies that were so damaging reversed, such as the loyalty oath um, that was really against the rights of sex workers to receive information and services, uh, which has caused great damage in HIV prevention efforts. Um, so there are several things that can be reversed, but I really think that at ICAW we want very much um, for these conversations to occur uh, within the broader context of poor women's lives and the access that they need to a broad range of services, um, which is the only true way to guarantee them the choices um, to be able to you know, have control over their own reproductive destinies. Thank you. Malika, what would you like to hear President Obama say next week? Um, you know, part of my, part of my uh, awe and proudness and gratefulness for this moment that we are in with President Obama is that in a, in a civil rights context, he, his leadership and his new discourse has really invited the next generation of us, those of us who stand on the shoulders of the civil rights pioneers, he, he has allowed us to come forward. Um, as he has talked about the Joshua generation, that his leadership has allowed a Joshua generation to come forward and to reframe and broaden the civil rights language and agenda. And I hope that we have that same invitation to be a Joshua generation within a post-Roe context. I don't know if we would talk about the Miriam generation, but the idea that his leadership, his presidency, be an invitation for the post-Roe generation to be able to come forward and emerge as leaders and be able to say, we stand on the shoulders of those who fought and won Roe. And it is now our opportunity to be able to broaden and define and reframe what we will say about reproductive health and rights and how we have an opportunity here to broaden the conversation and in ways that are new and authentic and expansive and visionary, talk about reproductive health as human rights, as women rights, as family rights, and make that the next part of, of the work to be done in the same way that we see that happening within the civil rights community. Thank you. Well, as we all know, the new president will face enormous challenges. I'm sorry, did I forget you, Jess? <laughs> My apologies. Go I ahead. Don't, I don't have to talk about vision. That's okay. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, and I don't want to interrupt the flow of this conversation with something pedestrian, but since so many people are standing in the back, we do have a handful of empty seats up uh, in the front. Don't be shy. Please come up and sit down. Um, well, I would like, um, I, uh, first of all, we've outlined a bunch of policy initiatives that we would like to see happen <clears throat> in a chapter that Shira and I wrote in the Center for American Progress Action Fund's Change for America book. And chapters are available at the registration table as you leave if you're interested, if you haven't seen that yet. It's also on our Action Fund website. Um, but I, you know, more broadly speaking, would like him to um, 
reiterate his commitment to reproductive rights, including abortion rights, but I would also like him to talk about the fact that it is reproductive rights are much more than abortion rights, that you know, we're going to talk about adequate prenatal care and um, decreasing the tragic rates of maternal and infant mortality in this country, fighting HIV and AIDS, that crisis here in, in the United States as well as abroad. Um, I would like him to acknowledge that abortion is indeed a moral issue uh, and that there are strong feelings on all sides of it, but that while it is a moral issue, it is not government's role to pass judgment on people's decisions. Rather, it's government's role to provide the information and resources that people need to make good decisions that accord with their own morals. Um, I'd like him to recognize that, that each woman's circumstances are unique and that, again, people are making the best decisions they can in the circumstances that they face. Um, I would like him to talk about prevention, preventing, bringing down ways we can bring down the unbelievable rates of unintended pregnancy that we see in this country. Um, but I would also like him to talk about more than prevention, um, to recognize that half of unintended pregnancies are carried to term. And instead of blaming women and girls for making a mistake somehow, uh, rather to provide them with the supports they need to um, succeed in, in raising the children that they do bring to term. Um, I would also like him to, um, trying to read my notes. Um, oh, again, as James had said, um, you know, when he talks about responsibility and personal responsibility, I also want him to talk about government responsibility. And again, that it, this two-way street concept that, that if we are going to hold people to these standards, we need to provide them with the, sort, the resources that they need. Um, to do so. And um, again, I would like him I kind of to echo what Gita said, um, to connect global and domestic issues and to recognize that we ought to have sound public health policies both here and abroad. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> clearly, we're asking a lot for um, of President Obama next week and what he says. And given the huge challenges he's facing on the economy, Iraq, Afghanistan, health care, climate change, etc. How do we see reproductive and sexual rights fitting into this big picture? Is it a culture war distraction issue that blocks meaningful progress? Is it important, but not at the top of the list of priorities for the new administration? Or is it essential to real reform? Who would like to chime in first on that one? I'll, I'll take that up um, right. in the context of um, his international agenda, which obviously the global economic crisis and the wars are a big piece of that. Uh, but we have been, together with many other international development organizations, um, working hard to get the new administration to recast foreign policy in a way that allows defense and diplomacy to be, or, or rather that allows international development initiatives to be on par with defense and diplomacy as tools of foreign, U.S. foreign policy. Um, and if we were to, the only way to do that is to have poverty reduction be a central goal of U.S. foreign policy, and that we, we are sort of asking for foreign policy reform that allows um, for poverty reduction to be a central goal. And if that, in fact, is the way that they move forward, which certainly it seems like it from um, the secretary-designate's comments in her confirmation hearings, um, you are not going to be able to achieve that goal of poverty reduction without um, giving women their full sexual and reproductive rights, because there's a direct link between fertility and, um, and poverty. 
and it and the link is both ways so that if women do not have access to family planning if women even in countries where abortion is legal are fearful to access abortion services if uh, prenatal and postnatal care services are not offered um, it has you know it has implications for women's ability to earn an income for women's ability to feed their families for, w for women's ability to be able to overcome the um, uh, poverty to climb out of poverty so um, I think that uh, there's a way to make the argument whereby that broader agenda that you talk of, of is, uh, is linked very closely to the agenda we're talking about here today. Um, and I think there's plenty of evidence um, to make that case. And that's what we've been working hard at, is just pulling out all the pieces of evidence that we've gathered over the years that makes a strong case for those linkages. So nobody can say that economic growth is somehow separate from the women's agenda. I'm sorry, it isn't. Uh, you're not going to achieve economic growth without investments in women's health and economic rights. Um, and sexual and reproductive rights are core to that. If, if I could just follow on that point uh, that my colleague has made for a minute internationally, um, these issues are tremendously relevant. Um, half the world's population, three billion people, are young people. The decisions they make about their sexual and reproductive health is going to determine quality of life on this planet for decades and decades to come. Global sustainability, you can't get there without addressing these issues in young people. Trying to build a firewall on HIV AIDS internationally, you can't get there without addressing uh, young people. And it's not just addressing them as end users of our services or our programs. There's a tremendous opportunity for President Obama to rebrand America with the generation that will determine global leadership. And the way to do that is to show that the US can approach young people with respect, can engage them as part of the solution, can put in science-based rather than ideological approaches to change. There's tremendous opportunity here. And our issues internationally and domestically are at the very center. Uh, just briefly, briefly, on a very small micro point, you know, is reproductive and sexual health relevant to the economic crisis? Yes, when teen pregnancy costs $9 billion a year. When teen STDs cost $6.5 billion a year. These are relevant issues. Tremendously relevant internationally, very relevant domestically. Thank you. Malika. I would just want to talk more um, about the domestic piece as well that I, I think this is, given the intensity and the scope of the problems that we face within this country, this is an opportunity we have to move beyond the myopic focus on abortion. That we can talk about economic recovery in terms of how do we give mothers at the margins the opportunity to have access to jobs and wages that allow them to really raise their children with health and stability. How do we uh, weigh in as the reproductive movement into the conversation about climate change? How do we talk about green jobs that allow our mothers at the margins to be able to come in and have economic mobility for themselves and for their children? How do we talk about climate change from the perspective of making sure that when we have natural disasters, our mothers at the margins are not left behind as they were in Katrina. When we talk about climate change, how do we make sure that mothers at the margins and vulnerable families are not disproportionately exposed to toxins and unprotected and uncared for and forgotten? And I would want to push it beyond just the huge issues of economic recovery, of climate change, 
to talk about health care reform, that we as the reproductive movement must weigh in to ensure that we have access to, comp to contraception coverage, that we have not only comprehensive prenatal care, but postnatal care, that we also demand that reform happen in these areas, that recovery happen in these critical areas that the pundits talk about every night, but that there are also other areas that we must weigh in, in terms of a broken child welfare system. The reproductive rights movement has a place in talking about a child welfare system that no longer works, and being able to speak to how do we reform that broken child welfare system so that families in crisis can stay together and have an opportunity for health and transformation. How do we talk about the degree of violence against women and girls and insist that the reproductive rights movement has a place not only in discussing the, the unacceptable levels of violence against women and girls, but also making the connections between violence and how violence denies women and girls the fullness of our personhood, the fullness of our reproductive agency. I think that, yes, these are very um, difficult and humbling times to be in. But there's also an opportunity here with what is the, the receding of the culture wars around abortion and what is a post-Roe generation coming forward to really use these issues and claim them as part of a reproductive health new generation, new rights, and new framework. Would, um, I guess I would answer all of the above to your, the options you laid out. I do um, see it not as necessarily something that the administration will lead on other, you know, other than a few acts maybe next week. Um, but at the same time, echoing what I think everyone's already said, um, you know, I mean, in, in times of economic crisis, you see fertility rates decline. They declined dramatically after the Depression, and they've declined noticeably after every recession. I think we've already started seeing an increase, a huge increase in the demand for contraception and abortion services. Um, and I think that, again, whatever we can do to, um, you know, create economic security for families is going to have a direct impact on the decisions, these very personal, intimate decisions they make about when and whether to have children. Um, I think, again, that in the healthcare debate, I mean, there's, that is obviously a huge question on the table about what kind of services are going to ultimately be included in, in uh, healthcare reform. Um, and then I also see that as a place where we um, very well will probably encounter um, the culture wars rearing their ugly head again, heads again. <laughs> um, because I think that there are those who are opposed to health care reform who will see abortion as an attractive issue to use to exploit, um, to try to create a wedge and slow progress in reform. And the question is, are we going to allow that to happen? Are we really, are we going to let people get away with that? I don't think we should let these issues be used as a distraction from real reform, reform that matters to people in their everyday lives. And we, at the same time, we have to ensure that people, um, that, that the reform is meaningful and that, that people are going to get access to the health care they really need. Jess, just to follow up a little bit on that on that point, for those of you who dip into the blogosphere occasionally, you'll you'll know that there's been quite a bit of debate about where reproductive rights fit going forward, and rather whether actions by President Obama 
to um, promote reproductive rights are seen as divisive or as not responsive to the supporters who, uh, particularly to his pro-life supporters or more moderate supporters. I wondered what you would say to that. How do we kind of maintain a united progressive community um, given the controversial nature of some of these issues? Well, um, abortion especially has been a galvanizing issue for so long. I think that some people are going to find it hard to break the habit. But, um, but I do see the terrain shifting in dramatic ways. I mean, we've already started to hear, I think, some new language, um, uh, certainly from President-elect Obama during the campaign and also in the Democratic Party platform. We um, have seen a coupling of respect for women's reproductive rights with um, and, and the decisions that they're going to make around abortion specifically, but coupling that with support for women who want to carry their pregnancies to term. Um, and I think, and both pro-life and pro-choice progressives have claimed credit for that shift. So I see that as a very good sign. I think that that is indicative of some genuine common ground. Um, and I, I think what we're seeing is that progressives overall, regardless of their feelings about abortion, do want pr pragmatic solutions. And I think Americans generally, uh, there's some very high polling numbers 80, in the 80 percentile of people wanting, um, preferring pragmatic solutions, providing services to women to avoid unintended pregnancy and to carry to term when they want to, um, instead of criminalization and, and restrictions on abortion. Um, and so, you know, where, where you really um, see uh, the sticking points, I think, is um, actually on the issue of contraception. Um, so, so the question is how much can we um, rally around that as part of the solution um, and as our most effective tool in, in the bag of tools that we have to address the issue of abortion. Um, and so I think that's something still to be worked out to, to in, you know, the devil's always in the details, right? Um, and we also see a potential divide, I think, um, with the rhetoric that the two camps use. Um, this is an overgeneralization, but generally, I would say um, pro-life progressives have been focusing on reducing abortion rates, whereas pro-choice progressives want to focus on reducing unintended pregnancy rates. Um, and to the uninitiated, I think that sounds like a distinction without a difference, perhaps. But, but. Um, from the pro-choice perspective, if you are talking only about reducing abortion, you're further stigmatizing the women who have abortions and the healthcare workers who provide them. And you also are leaving the door open for further legal restrictions on access to abortion. Um, and so, so that is um, something that, again, I think people, if they're, you know, I think that there are people who genuinely authentically want to work together on this issue. And I think that those conversations need to um, happen a little bit more, I think, to, to figure out where there are areas of agreement and where there are distinctions where we may or may not be able to work together. But, um, but I do want to push back on this idea of betrayal, that if uh, President Obama does something um, that pro-choice groups want, that that's somehow a betrayal of his pro-life voters and supporters. I, I think that really is. Um, destructive to uh, what could be a very productive conversation. Um, I think that um, 
what may seem ironic to some is that pro-choice initiatives actually are the most effective and humane and just way to bring down abortion rates. And so I think that there are a lot of initiatives uh, President Obama could undertake that would satisfy most people. And I think that there's more common ground than a lot of people realize. Okay. Would anyone like to add to that? said that um, the way to unite progressives in the country is to fix your vision at the right altitude. And I think uh, Jess has it right. You know, this kind of, I even go far as to say, you know, the president needs to show a kind of militant pragmatism, you know, in policies that get results. That means science-based uh, policies, evidence-based policies. And Americans are at core pragmatists. I think they'll rally around um, a program like that. But I think we do have to be, the Democrats need to be realistic politically. And let's be honest, the Democrats, particularly those in the House, have showed halting leadership at best on reproductive health. I mean, for goodness sake, uh, David Obey, with Speaker Pelosi's um, acquiescence, tried to increase funding for failed abstinence-only programs. This was after every leading medical organization in the country said these programs don't work, the enormous harm they do to young people. So I'd send a warning um, to the Democrats very strongly, particularly in the House side, that this election sent you a big message. Young people, for the first time, displace 65-plus as voters in the electorate. Young people not only supported Obama and the Democrats dramatically, but they are strongly uh, progressive on reproductive and sexual health issues. Listen to a few stats. In California, the majority, tragically, uh, voted in favor of the anti-equal uh, marriage amendment, Prop 8. But 61% of young people voted it down. In South Dakota, the abortion ban, 60% of young people voted against it. In Colorado, the, um, um, the initiative defining the fetus as a person that would have outlawed all abortion, 75% of young people voted it down. Parental notification that we're constantly hearing from the so-called moderates in the House and the Senate, loser issue, can't win, can't win. Not only was a parental notification for abortion amendment defeated in California, 64% of young people voted it down. So when the Democrats sink to their usual timidity and inaction on reproductive and sexual health issues, remember, young people are empowered, they're watching, they're not gonna take this anymore. Anyone wanna add to that rousing cry, Malika? <laughs> um, I, I would agree with everything that's said. I, I would also, um, you know, I think this is a president who works through uh, unity through intersectionality. And I think we saw this play out with uh, inviting Rick Warren as well as Bishop Gene Robinson, that, that he believes, and, and it is also what he is um, constitutionally, he is made up of black and white. And so insofar as his own being represents intersectionality, I think that is the way that he will move forward in addressing the culture wars and also inviting people um, from different ideological camps and lived experiences to work together. I, I, I don't know that that's unity. I think it's more an approach of intersectionality. And, and I think there uh, is an opportunity for us to look at that in terms of, of working with um, the pro-life community, that what are the places of intersectionality that aren't necessarily unity, but allow us to do some shared work and also have share tension and push and pull and disagreement. I, th I think that is, that allows us to be healthier um, as a movement and, and as communities of women and, and mothers and families. Um, I would also though hope that in, in some of 
the, um, the language that is emerging around unintended, unintended uh, pregnancies versus um, or unwanted pregnancies versus um, unwanted abortions, however it's, it's being framed and set up. Um, I, I hope we bring some nuance to this. And, and I think about this issue in terms of teenage pregnancy and the push to reduce teenage pregnancy. Um, that, that yes, that is a place for us to join together, but, but, but also let's add some complexity here, that, that we're not just stuck within the confines of um, more pregnancy, less pregnancy for teenagers, but we start asking the harder questions of not simply looking at access to contraception for teenagers and sex education, but also looking at why so many girls who are subject to violence are also then pregnant as a result of the experience of violence. Making those difficult connections between how girls experience sexual violence and then teenage pregnancy. That needs to be part of the conversation as well, not only reducing it to a conversation about reducing teen pregnancy, but adding that complexity of who these girls are and what they struggle with in terms of their lives and issues of violence. I just, I just want to add <clears throat> um, the point about the fact that ideology exists on both the left and the right. And um, you can find the common ground only by both sides, um, you know, agreeing to um, base decisions on evidence. And I'm, I'm also of the opinion that there is no non-ideological research. Um, however, um, you know, we've gone too far to the other extreme in the past eight years in terms of um, basing policy far too much on ideology. Um, so I think evidence will help. Um, create some of that common ground, create the sort of the foundation for those conversations. Uh, I'm certainly hopeful of that. And I, and I agree with Malika's point about nuance. I think that, um, that we need to bring some of that reality into, into the policy discussion. I mean, I think about teen pregnancy and the way it's talked about in this country. Um, and, um, you know, want to constantly bring into that discussion the fact that uh, a lot of teenage pregnancy in the developing world occurs within marriage. Mm -hmm. And, um, and marriage for young girls occurs sometimes as young as at the age of 12 and 11. So they're children giving birth to children within marriage. So if you want to keep the foundation of marriage strong, but not uh, completely debilitate the future prospects of young girls, um, how do we work together to ensure that the age of marriage is uh, increased in the developing world and that girls are not uh, and families are not in, in economic circumstances where they see no other out than to get their girls married at a very young age. So, so the issues are complex, and I think for purposes of, um, of achieving success and progress, we have often all been um, responsible for diluting them into sound bites um, that then, you know, actually handcuff us in in our ability to find that common ground and move ahead. So I'm, I'm certainly hoping that we will uh, be brave enough to recognize complexity, that we will um, rely on evidence and be, um, be brave enough to acknowledge when the evidence doesn't support our ideological position. Um, those are the pieces that I think will help uh, as we move forward. Given, 
<clears throat> given the, the broad range of reproductive rights issues, the broad agenda that we've been talking about here, I'd like to know what you think the most, um, where's the greatest chance of success? What issue could we most quickly address and see some progress on? And what do you see as the most challenging? Mm -hmm. Who wants to go first? Um, Jessica. I can take a stab. Um, I, um, well, I, I mean, already we're starting to see a little bit of success um, on economic security issues um, with the um, House passing fair pay legislation last week and the Senate uh, set to vote on one of those bills this week. Um, and with the House passing S-CHIP yesterday, you know, again, I see those as, as related to uh, reproductive and sexual health and rights and family well-being and building families. Um, I hope that we are able to achieve meaningful health care reform in this country in the next couple of years. Um, and I do see political will behind that in a way that we hadn't previously. Um, I, I, would, I think we can do better. Uh, I think there's much more we can do in terms of uh, paid family leave, um, in terms of um, you know, uh, recognizing the human rights um, and equality of LGBT persons in this country, their right to love, marry, and raise children. Um, and so hopefully we'll make progress on their ability to marry and to foster and adopt and, and use reproductive technologies. Um, and um, I... And the most challenging. The most challenging. Well, that was, I was starting to, that was kind of challenging, getting to the most challenging, which is... Um, Comprehensive reproductive health services for poor women. Um, I think that that is going to we, and and by that I do mean abortion. We've had the Hyde Amendment uh, since 1976, and I think it's time for it to go. Um, as a social, as a matter of social justice, uh, poor women should, if if there's a right, uh, poor women should be able to exercise that right to the same extent that wealthier women can. Um, but we have we see health disparities for poor women in in every area that we look at. Again, the maternal and child mortality rates, HIV/AIDS, STDs, everything. Um, there, so we really need to address uh, services, comprehensive services for for people, regardless of their economic status. Thanks, Gita. International. Um, front, the, um, I think the easiest to do uh, would right. be to reverse the global <laughs> gag rule, and I'm hoping that that'll happen very soon after the inauguration to um, hopefully um, also remove the, the anti-prostitution uh, clause um, and the restrictions on UNFPA. I mean, I'm hoping those would be fairly simple things to do and will happen immediately. Um, I also think that the U.S., you know, the U.S. for many decades has been a leadership on family plan, a lead, has played a leadership role on family planning and population issues globally. And it's only in the past few years that we have sort of lost that position of leadership. And I'm hoping that that will be fairly easy to do as well, so that um, the US has leadership not just on HIV AIDS, for example, malaria and TB uh, to some extent, but also on uh, population and family planning issues. And I, um, I think that the one way to do that is to get the US to play a stronger role in reducing maternal deaths around the world. Because in order to do that, you do need access to family planning. You need access to safe abortions. Um, you need um, young, you know, the age of marriage to increase. You need access to obstetric emergency care. Uh, and those, those are all investments that will strengthen the health sector in the developing world overall. It's the single issue 
that sort of deals with all aspects of, of health systems in the developing world and can be a good way in which to strengthen health systems. So we're certainly hoping that that would happen. And the other piece is, you know, to try and be more pragmatic about the providing integrated services for women so that you uh, stop this stupidity of keeping HIV AIDS services separate from reproductive health services mm -hmm. uh, for women. So that women have to go to family planning and one to one for one, you know, to one place and for getting their antiretrovirals if they're positive to another place or prevention advice on HIV to another place. It makes no sense. So uh, what happened with the reauthorization of the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, where uh, there was a restriction placed on integrating those two, should go. Um, what's challenging? I think the perhaps a little more challenging and something, therefore, that we should do our homework on very carefully. And really, frankly, Shira, what's easy and challenging depends on all of us right. <laughs> on how well we do our homework and how well we strategize. Um, um, is CEDAW. I'd like to see the Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women be ratified by the U.S. under this administration. Uh, but it's going to take some doing. It's going to require us to do some homework on what held it back the last time around, what were those reservations, understanding, and declarations that, um, you know, that um, lost us the support that we thought we might have. Uh, but it is um, unconscionable that the U.S. Uh, you know, be one of a handful of countries uh, around the world that has not ratified CEDAW. And uh, ICAW will certainly be working uh, towards that goal in the coming years. Thank you. Malika, do you want to add something? Um, sure. I, I, um, I've had a hard time lately going to the Hill and having meetings with uh, lawmakers talking about mothers who were disconnected and in crisis and at the margins before the economic collapse of of the U.S. Um, so I, insofar as the reproductive rights movement claims mothers at the margins, I think that we have a real challenge in being able to make sure that those mothers at the margins, especially those mothers who are in the pipeline from uh, poverty addiction into the prison system, that those mothers be able to get pulled out of that pipeline that leads them to jail and prison and be pulled out in such a way that they can take care of their children. You know, we have more mothers behind bars than at any other point in our history. And most of those mothers have children under the age of 18. And those children are in the child welfare and kinship care systems. And their outcomes are pretty abysmal. And so I worry about how do we continue to make the argument that those mothers need our help and our attention and our resources and ought to be pulled out of the criminal justice system and have the opportunity for health and healing and the opportunity to raise their children with dignity. Um, I ask and, and think a lot about how do we make those arguments to lawmakers. And I, I prey on. Um, other coalitions, reproductive health coalitions, women's coalitions, child welfare and criminal justice coalitions, honoring those women and claiming them in the work that gets done in the next four years. Um, and I, I also uh, am worried about the issue of violence um, and our girls. You know, we talk a lot about the pipelines, the, the cradle to prison pipeline that gets talked about for our boys. Um, but there are our girls, and our girls are in the juvenile justice system in unprecedented numbers, just like our mothers behind bars. 
And most of those girls come out of situations of violence. Most of those girls are behind bars because they're prostitutes or because they're running away. And, and what they're often running away from is sexual violence. And so what keeps me up at night in terms of the biggest challenges before us is how do we get the reproductive rights communities to claim those girls, to talk about the issue of violence, and how do we get a larger community of lawmakers and citizens to care about those girls in light of the other stressors that are on our families and on our country. James, I think you have the final word for this section. Sure, I, I think there is tremendous uh, prospect with the president, I think, showing leadership on the sex education issue and finally <clears throat> eliminating funding for failed abstinence-only programs. As I mentioned earlier, we will have to watch the Democrats in the House to see if they will finally follow through um, and give young people access to all the information they need to protect their health and lives in the era of AIDS. I also think that, um, as Gita had mentioned, the importance of international family planning and targeting that billion-dollar appropriations for international family planning. It's aggressive, it's bold, but if we can complement complement the inside advocacy strategy on the Hill with a grassroots engaged movement, particularly among young people in this country, I think that's reachable. And it's an extremely important goal uh, to have. I, I, I place the challenge at a broader level. Uh, as activists, I think there's a real um, challenge when our friends come into power. And oftentimes we uh, equate uh, or conflate um, advocacy with access. Now we have access to the administration. We have access to the offices. And when they tell us they don't want to do something, we accept that and go our merry way. Um, that's not advocacy. Um, uh, that's politics. And I think what we need to do is to remember who our stakeholders are. In my case, it's young people. And as passionate as I was on my own private time, canvassing with my son for Barack Obama, when I walk through the glass doors at my office, I serve young people. And I think we all have to remember that and be willing to hold our friends as accountable as we did our opponents. It is critical uh, to make uh, progress, and it shows whether we're true social justice advocates or not. Thank you. I myself could have 20 more questions to ask you all, but I do want to leave time for those of you who came this morning. So I'm going to turn it over to the audience. Um, I do ask you to identify yourselves before you speak, because this is being recorded, who you are and the institution you come from. Um, and I guess we'll start right away. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my name is Priscilla Chisholm. Uh, I'm a healthcare consultant, but in hearing you all talk about uh, taking a broader and more comprehensive approach to these issues, it occurred to me to recommend that you explicitly include or consider including the healthy families model in the U.S. If you're familiar with it, um, it identifies mothers at risk of sexual violence, homelessness, drug abuse, and all the rest of it, um, and offers them on a voluntary basis participation in a marvelous program of intervention uh, that involves, I won't get too detailed, but in-home visitation during the first pregnancy, and it then follows the family uh, until a child is at age five. There's a lot of it in Virginia. There are 40 sites. But the impact of it is the quintessential prevention. In years of Healthy Families activities, no child has come to harm. 
and these are in situations where it would predict child abuse. Uh, Senator Warner. Oh, I beg your pardon. Senator Warner has been a real, uh, Mark Warner, has been a real advocate of this in Virginia for a long time. But it, it offsets sexual violence. It predicts much lower uh, levels of juvenile delinquency when a, a child has been born into an environment with that kind of support. And without our really, fo and this isn't what I do professionally or anything, but I've been on the board. Um, Without our focusing on reproductive aspects, it has nonetheless, um, in situations where a woman would have a second pregnancy within 20 months, uh, the women who participate in this have access to comprehensive health care and end up not having a second pregnancy for nearly three years. So just think about that. Thank you. I think there was someone right behind you. Good morning. My name is uh, Stephanie Ortaleva. In amongst being a, um, my work outside of my working life, I'm also an advocate with the National Organization for Women. And I just wanted to ask you, I guess, what I view as the white elephant in the room, which is the Supreme Court. And in light of the Supreme Court and the way that it has been going on so many issues, and especially reproductive um, health and justice for for women and our families, how do you all envision us, um, if you will, going around to the Supreme Court? Um, in an effort to um, achieve our rights to, and to counteract some of the measures that have uh, resulted from recent decisions? Um, well, I, um, I wouldn't call it going around the court, um, but I do think um, there is kind of an ebb and flow to strategies. Um, and, and I think uh, we were kind of as a movement for a long time very reliant on the court system um, and, and didn't always focus as much on, on the grassroots organizing. And I think we're starting to do that again a little bit more in response to some of the defeats we've seen in the courts. Um, and I think that you know it's a, a good opportunity to take our opponents, uh, take on their narrative that, um, that Roe was a mistake because there wasn't popular support and that it was a, you know, um, an anti-majoritarian decision and, and all of these things and it, wasn't, it was anti-democratic and judges legislating from the bench. I think that's a fallacy and I think that um, we're starting to prove that fallacy um, when you see the, the, re the outcome of the referenda in South Dakota, in Colorado, in California. Um, we see the trend going the other way. So I think that, that we have a very good opportunity for organizing right now on the state and national level. I think that um, we, we do, uh, there is um, majority support for everything that we work on. And I think that we need to tap into that energy and we need to, uh, kind of along the lines of what Malik was saying, recognize though that our culture has shifted a lot since Roe was decided and we need to tap into the interests um, and, and concerns of, of the whole population um, and, 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 and pursue our agenda in the legislature if, as much as, if not more than, in the courts. But I don't think we should give up on fighting for rights in the courts as well. Exactly. I, I think that we, we ought not to give up that right. And, and, and yet I think that it has been good for us to lose many of those legal battles because it has forced us to rethink how do we talk about these issues? How do we tell the story? What is the narrative in order to garner support from, from the country? And I, and, and I think that's good. I think that's something that we had to do 
in order to grow as a movement and, and what powerful ways we are growing to, to see what happened in November in the, as a result of that type of grassroots organizing. And I would also, I would also argue a new generation of, um, of women coming forward, of post-real women coming forward to be able to tell the story and to talk to folks about why they needed to be against those ballot measures. Uh, Cindy. Cindy Pearson, National Women's Health Network. Um, the last year and a half, the network and a couple of other organizations, um, including the Avery Institute for Social Justice and Merger Watch Project of Community Catalyst, have been putting out extra effort to reach out to women, talk to them about their health issues, the issues of they, they and their families, and then bring them along into activism on healthcare reform. Um, I wanted to ask each of you, what do you think your organizations can do? I know think tanks think, but, <laughs> and you've been thinking, um, but what, what your organizations can do that is new to you to add your efforts to the healthcare reform movement. Because if it's led primarily by the people who've been leading it for quite some time, with the limited involvement that has existed up until now, and that I would imagine we'd see two weeks from now when one of the biggest healthcare reform organizations has its annual meeting, we're not gonna get comprehensive reproductive health. No matter how much we say those words, no matter how beautifully we articulate what that means to us now, so much more than abortion, we're not gonna get it unless we're much more engaged. And I, I wanna ask, what do you think your organization can do that's new, that brings something additional to this work? Well, Malika, I mean, thank you. <laughs> I guess I have a little bit of an out here, which is that um, you know we've been talking about what is our role in this healthcare reform uh, debate because the mothers whom we represent and the families whom we represent are on Medicaid, and so the struggle there is the ways in which uh, Medicaid doesn't necessarily take care of all their needs. Um, so. We're in, be, because we, are, we deal so deeply with mothers and families at the margins, I have questions and I'm, I'm open to thinking about how is it that an organization like ours weighs into to what, what is this very critical healthcare reform uh, issue. I think in terms of engaging young people, there's a misperception out there that young people are totally disengaged in this issue because they're on the early end of kind of the healthcare uh, continuum, but I think it's it's accurate to the point that to get young people um, engaged, there's got to be an issues frame that taps their sense of uh, social justice, uh, fairness, effectiveness, and perhaps most importantly, respect. Um, that all communities in this country will be respected in this process, and that um, access and rights will be um, enabled, and this process will not be used by ideologues to take them away. I think if we can frame the debate in that kind of a, uh, uh, way, uh, young people will be uh, stalwart allies for progressive healthcare reform. Um, I mean, in addition to the Women's Health and Rights Program, we also have a healthcare team here at the Center for American Progress and, and Beyond Thinking. We have, through our Action Fund, uh, been very active in uh, getting the facts out about healthcare reform and 
and trying to engage a lot of different constituencies, working in coalition with many of you and others. Um, and and I do want to push back for just a little on a, just a little bit on this. I don't want to have a self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh, we're never going to get what we want, and so what are we going to? I mean, I, I hear you though that how how are we going to engage in new ways in order to ensure that we get what we want? And I think it starts by asking for it, um, and and not saying and not kind of in advance giving policymakers the permission to not do it. Um, but I, I, I do think we need to continue to work on ways to be creative about it. And I, th I think it, it, it does involve using all the channels that we have, so engaging more people to tell their stories and to get involved and engaged in activism around the issue, doing the education of policymakers, working with the media to, to rethink some of their pre-told narratives in their head, um, and, and all of those things. Front, in the front row on the left, I think. Thank you. Uh, good morning. My name is Tony Bond Leonard with Black Women for Reproductive Justice. Thank you for all of your very enlightening comments. Um, I had a question that kind of spoke to what you said, Jessica, about grassroots and Malika, what you've been saying about this whole post-row conversation. And I think that um, low-income women, women of color, and young women will be central to us reframing the conversation. But I'm really interested in how you know some of your groups are working to not just have women from those three populations be at the center of the debate, but supporting their leadership to lead the agenda to create change around the debate and the agenda. Well, um, first of all, I stand on your shoulders because um, uh, you were one of the, the pioneers for me in terms of, of bringing me to the issue of reproductive justice. So I just want to always uh, be grateful for those who, who help us. Um, uh, the way the Rebecca Project for Human Rights works is uh, we have a uh, national network of mother advocates, and all of them are in recovery from substance abuse, trauma, and violence and they direct our policy agenda. And so the way we came to the issue of mothers being shackled behind bars is that we were doing a leadership training with mothers who were uh, in recovery uh, from mostly crack cocaine and who had been, most of, of whom had been incarcerated. And the way the uh, leadership training starts is asking the mothers to talk about my come from place. And a number of the mothers in the telling of their come from place talked about giving birth to their children while shackled. And as a result of that experience that they shared, we started to look at what was happening in our state prisons and federal correctional facilities and were able to um, do human rights documentation of mothers who had been shackled while in federal prison or state um, prison or, or jails. Uh, and as a result of that human rights documentation, we brought the issue to Congress and were able to uh, achieve two things. One is that now all federal correctional facilities must document when a mother is shackled. Um, and we ended the practice of shackling uh, during labor delivery and post-delivery in all federal correctional facilities. 
as well as in transports made by the U.S. Marshals because a lot of the shackling was actually happening as a result of the U.S. Marshals. And um, the struggle continues in terms of the state prisons and jails uh, and, and how do we get to them. Um, and a couple of really uh, wonderful lessons came out of this process. One was that we built a coalition of criminal justice, women's rights, and reproductive, reproductive health organizations in helping us to do this work. And it, was, it, it, it is a wonderful intersection of different groups. And, and I think it's part of why we've been so successful. And joining that kind of intersectional coalition with the words, experiences, and voices of the mothers uh, has also led to that success. Um, and another piece is, is because we began with where those mothers were, I feel very good about how, um, how we tackled the issue. Uh, and, and because we always bring back to the mothers in our network what has been accomplished and what still needs to get done, there is a feeling of accountability uh, that I really treasure. Um. I, I don't know if I should also, uh, real quick. Um, well, CAP is not a grassroots organization, but um, we do work with some grassroots organizations in a way that we consider to be, and some have called grass tops. Um, and we created a network uh, back in 2005 called the Women's Health Leadership Network, um, where it was primarily women who worked in organizations outside the Beltway, um, representing youth, women of color, low-income women, um, in a variety uh, and, and doing a variety of, of things, whether it's public education or advocacy or direct services, legal services. Um, and Malika is a member of that Women's Health Leadership Network. Um, and we have tried very hard to ensure to, well, first of all, we wanted um, their perspectives and experiences to inform our work. Um, and we wanted to, um, where we could uh, create access for them that uh, to tables they may not have had uh, presence at in, in previous times, um, to give them new venues for their work and new audiences and, and provide them with skills building and training to help them uh, increase their own profile and their leadership in this movement. Okay, we have a lot of questions. Why don't we go to the back for a little? Um, since we're short on time, what, I, what I'd like to suggest is that everyone ask their questions, and then I'm going to give the panel a, a chance to respond to a group of questions as, as they can. So I think there are three people and three or four people in the back. Let's start with that. Okay, start. Uh, good morning. You. My name is Margot Busey. Obviously, I'm in the Navy. I'm visiting from San Diego, but soon to be of the Navy Women's Policy Office. Uh, my question is actually about uh, state and local politics. I know we've seen since Roe v. Wade the largest erosion of our reproductive rights at the state and local level, and I kind of anticipate in the next few years we'll see more ballot initiatives. But how do we combat these ballot initiatives in typically right-wing conservative strongholds, um, and you know combat the fallacy that reproductive rights are a majority or popular vote issue? Hi, Matt Hader from CNSNews.com. Um, uh, my question is for anyone who's willing to answer it. Um, how um, how would you defend or not defend um, any taxpayer funding of abortions? Uh, since although you know you mentioned earlier that there were certain states that have uh, overturned abortion bans, where you know the majority of the people voted there, there still is a sizable fraction of America um, which is uh, you know against abortion, or at least in certain cases. How would you be able to advocate um, for uh, you know taxpayer funding uh, you know of, of abortions for people who do not support abortion? 
Westling um, with the Center for Bioethics at Penn Univers at University of Pennsylvania. Um, I, I actually want to ask the bottom line question. Um, and uh, to lead up to it, let me just say I haven't seen, did not see in the campaign, um, nor do I see any particular enthusiasm in the administration for reproductive health issues or in the president-elect for these issues. I see no opposition. I see, you know, general, yeah, yeah, those are good things and I'm with them, but doesn't seem to me to be much of a priority. And I hear on the panel uh, some of the words I heard repeatedly were, uh, you know, an evidence-based approach, pragmatism, uh, and an overall sense of um, a much higher degree of tolerance uh, for diverse or for opposing opinions on reproductive health, and a sense of wherever common ground is possible, common ground is where we should go. Um, perhaps I misheard, um, but that's what I heard. And those sound like good things. At the same time, they don't sound particularly powerful politically. Um, so the question really is, and, and I would say when we look at some of these specifics, and I'll just point to one, let's look at the prevention agenda. Um, Jessica points to the problem that the most effective method of prevention, contraception, is one that is still um, vociferously opposed and ignored, even by progressives who call themselves pro-life, and that the packages that have been suggested for women who want to continue their pregnancies are disgusting. They're non-existent. They won't do a thing to enable women to have, to have, to have children safely. And none of us are talking very much about improving those packages. So with that context, I'm rather pessimistic view, needless to say, but let's put it forward. What kind of bottom lines, if any, does the movement have other than reversing bad stuff that happened in the last eight years that you would hold yourself accountable to your stakeholders to if at the end of the next four years you have not accomplished them? Three, three great and interrelated questions, actually. And so before we take any others, let me give the panel a chance to respond to each or all of those in some way or another. Who wants to jump in? I'll just take James. on two um, quickly. I think, again, with respect to state and local politics, it's going to be incumbent upon advocates to really uh, mobilize and engage youth as partners um, on these issue sets, given where they stand and how they played such a major role, um, not only in the election of a pro-choice president in Barack Obama, but also in the rejection of these initiatives around the country. So um, at local community level, and it doesn't mean just asking young people to follow our direction. It means engaging them as leaders, as partners, as strategists on the front end um, of this movement's work, and our failure to do so will just, I think, inevitably consign our movement to the dustbin of history. Um, in terms of uh, Francis's challenge, I think uh, two points. First, I think, as pat as it sounds, uh, science-based public health, it would be a tremendous transformation in this country to have public health in the reproductive 
and sexual health area be based on science and evidence. Do not underestimate what a shift that would be because to date it has been totally dictated by sheer, by fear, shame and denial and ideology. So I think that would be an enormously significant piece. Where I would put um, um, advocates specifically on, on record is in three areas. One, that we would absolutely be successful in ending the failed experiment uh, with ideology called abstinence-only programs and bringing resources to the grassroots level for implementation of comprehensive sex ed. I think that's number one. Uh, number two, I think making an installment on a broader vision for sexual health in this country and really working either a Surgeon General's report or if it takes it a grassroots campaign to have this culture address the dysfunction that lies at the core of our norms and policies. And if you pull at reproductive health, if you pull at teen pregnancy, if you pull at so many of these different issues, it all leads to these attitudes around sex itself that is preventing progress um, being made. And third, to the point that my colleagues have been making so strongly here, is that the movement for too long has been narrow and small bore in looking at reproductive and sexual health outside of social health, jobs, employment, opportunity, fairness. And I think that message is finally getting through in a very pragmatic and concrete way. And I would expect to be able to see new coalitions, new strategic alliances, where groups get out of their comfort zones, like my own, and work with groups that focus on disconnected youth, for example, and dropouts in education and employment ramps. That's the kind of work we need to show to show our stakeholders, as you say, Francis, that it is a new day. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, in answer to the first question, the woman from the Navy, um, that um, I think that we need to engage in some basic civic education. I think that we that that the right wing has done a tremendous disservice to this country by talking about. Um, these, you know, legislating from the bench and kind of the activist, activist judges and, and all of that. I think we really need to re-educate people about the branches of government, what the roles are, what it means to have a vote, what it means to have a fundamentally protected right. Um, and, and so I think that, that that is needed as part of it. It's not just an education about specific issues. It is an education about how our system of government works. Um, on taxpayer funding for abortion, I would say that there are a number of things that our taxes support that people disagree with. We live in a pluralistic society, a very diverse society. Um, we have taxes funding the war in Iraq uh, that have funded torture, that have funded extraordinary uh, rendition, um, Guantanamo. Um, there are, and, and that's just one set of issues where we know taxes are going to things that uh, not everyone in this country agrees with and, and has fundamental uh, objections to. Nevertheless, again, to the extent we recognize rights in this country, they ought to apply to everyone. And so that is how I would justify taxpayer funding for abortion. It is a citizen's obligation to provide taxes for the common good and welfare. And, and even if you disagree on certain issues, um, overall, you know, we set policy and, and our taxes go to support all of those policies. Um, in answer to Francis, I don't think I was saying uh, common good at all, I mean common ground at all cost. Um, I was uh, wanting to take advantage of this political moment in time where there does seem to be, there are people who I think are making these common ground arguments mostly for political purposes without much behind it. But I also think there are people in good faith authentically willing to work on common ground 
Um, I do think that there are some pro-life progressives who recognize the need for sex education and contraception um, and are willing to work on that and who also would agree that um, the packages in support of pregnant women uh, on the table um, are not yet sufficient to get us where we want to go. Um, and I agree, we need to be calling for more. We need to have more teeth behind all of the legislative packages we see on the Hill. Um, and, uh, and, so, and so that's where I, I think we need to go. I think we need to um, see where we are in four years in terms of contraception, sex ed, and in terms of the supports for pregnant women that we've been talking about. Um, I think that we have a tall order and, and we have a lot of work to do. Um, can I, can I sure. just answer Francis's question? Because I, I really appreciate you challenging the panel, Francis. And, um, and, and, and it's important for us not to just be reactive in this incredible moment of opportunity, uh, but to be proactive. What is it we want to not just reverse, but actually have happen? And because I'm somewhat disadvantaged on this panel because I, we work on the internet in the developing world, but I will say to you that ICRW's um, agenda right now looking forward in terms of a proactive agenda uh, has high on its list CEDAW. So I just want to mention that one as high on our list. Um, has second, a second piece which is critical and didn't get mentioned as much in our conversation today is to ensure that gender, you know, the gender perspective is integrated throughout State Department and USAID and PEPFAR and MCC and that all of the foreign assistance pieces um, of the U.S. program are, are integrated better. Uh, but the gender integration piece, we're working hard to try and say, you know, here's how it should be structured, here's what needs to happen. Um, and if we can make that happen, I think um, that, is, that is something that can be sustained over a longer period of time and will then ensure that a lot of the agendas we're talking about here um, in fact get, in, you know, um, have, get some action um, forward uh, based on evidence. Uh, in terms of issues, we are certainly looking for poverty reduction to be a main pillar of foreign policy, not just foreign assistance. We're looking to reduce maternal mortality, and a big piece in that is to ensure access to contraception, to reduce the unmet need for contraception. Um, the integration of HIV and family planning services is a big piece. To finally do something through the International Violence Against Women Act on violence against women and get some leadership on that and get some normative change uh, within countries and to push hard for secondary education for girls, not just primary education. And even those seem to fall outside the purview of reproductive health and rights. In fact, as we all know, they don't. So that's our proactive agenda. Malika and then James. I just want to be very brutally honest in, in response to what Francis has uh, put before us. For, for many in my generation, th this post-Roe generation, there is a sense that the pro-choice movement is anti-family and anti-child. And that is especially felt among young women of color. And so I think we have an opportunity here to push this narrative to include a pro-child, pro-mother, pro-family, pro-human rights context to how we talk about our movement. And I think there is more urgency and opportunity around bringing in family and mothering and children into our conversation in a way that has not existed before. Because of the receding of the culture wars, culture wars that don't belong to the new generation that voted for Obama, 
and cultural wars that have lost their steam and an emergence of young leadership and new leadership that is interested in having a different conversation. That different conversation allows those of us who have been at the margins of the reproductive rights framework to talk about the inclusion of the sacredness of women, the sacredness of mothering, the sacredness of family, the sacredness of our children as part of how we talk about reproductive rights. That is not, an, is not at all antithetical to that which founded Roe and the reproductive rights movement. Secondly, I think that what has not yet been named, and, and which I name strongly and proudly, is the reproductive justice movement, the women of color movement that has said we have to have a more intersectional approach to how we talk about reproductive rights. That we cannot talk about reproductive rights unless we talk about economic rights, unless we talk about the rights to our children, the rights to daycare, the rights to good education for our children. And so I think that um, those who have fought for us ought to give us the opportunity for a, a new infusion of voices that have either been silenced, somewhat dishonored, or ignored to be able to come in and push the confines and the boundaries of how we have discussed reproductive rights for the last 25 years. And I think there ought to be excitement around that. Um, and I also think it's an opportunity for new leadership that ought not to be discouraged but mentored. And if that happens, I do think that how we win on the local and state level will be unprecedented because we will have the opportunity to bring new voices and a new telling, a new narrative, a new framework to these cultural wars and to the controversial issues around reproductive health that I think ultimately will lead to a, a grounding and entrenchment of reproductive rights as human rights. Sure, Thank if you. I could just come back to the international for a moment. Um, my colleague mentioned something extremely uh, important within the feminization of HIV, and that is the integration of HIV prevention with reproductive health internationally. And there was one uh, very sour note struck this week when the transition team maintained uh, the Bush leader um, uh, for the AIDS um, uh, program, PEPFAR, Ambassador Mark Dybul. Um, you know, I'm sure he's a nice guy, and um, the, many of the things that PEPFAR did on treatment are, are truly outstanding, and we need to say that. But on prevention, particularly young people, it's been a, a shocking failure. And PEPFAR not only exported abstinence only um, abroad, it took an, which is a totally anti-science position, but it opposed needle exchange, it opposed, as you say, outreach uh, to sex workers, which could prevent HIV spreading. Um, and in addition, he has made um, little secret of his opposition to integration, which so many of us support. So I do feel uh, this move to keep Ambassador Dybul um, in place is a slap in the face to uh, public health science internationally, to young people globally, and particularly to women who need integration of these services at the local community level to finally arrest HIV. I see that there are many more hands, and I'm, I'm really distressed to see that our, that our time is actually up. 
So what I'm going to ask them simply is for that our panelists, and I'm going to ask you to be very brief, to in a sense respond to Francis's question of a few minutes ago, which is four years from now, at the 40th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, what do you want us to be saying? What do you want us to look back on and say, you know, yes, we did, yes, we can, yes, we did, we succeeded, looking back four years from now? Jessica. Um, well, again, I'd, I'd really like us to have made progress on both contraception, access to contraception, and to um, medically accurate sex education. I would like us to have achieved um, better um, paid, family, uh, ac uh, paid family leave, um, child care, affordable child care. Um, I mean, there's so many. <laughs> there's so much I would like to do. I, but I think some some things like that are achievable in in the four-year time period. Healthcare reform is another one. Uh, that's probably the biggest ticket. That we've not only um, established core principles, but we've got a plan for making America a sexually healthy nation, and we've engaged uh, the three billion young people around the world to make this a truly sustainable planet. I, I listed some of our priorities um, earlier, but we'll, we'll just say that we're certainly hopeful that there will be actually uh, actual sort of structural changes in the way um, organizations that deliver foreign assistance and conduct foreign policy are, are, are designed and structured and coordinated. Because without that, you're not going to see any of these agendas really addressed. Um, and we'd like to really see the, the women's issue uh, and gender issues be um, you know, primary in, in the poverty reduction and foreign assistance agenda. Uh, that we see the, the right to mother and mothering with dignity played out in policy reform such that there is the end of state prisons and jails shackling our mothers during labor delivery and post-delivery, that our mothers in the prisons and jails be alternatively sentenced so that they can be with their children. Uh, and that we expand family-based treatment such that mothers don't have to make a Sophie's Choice between treatment and their children. I think those policy reforms uh, would be about honoring mothering and giving mothers the opportunity who are vulnerable to mother with dignity, and that those policy reforms be part of how the reproductive rights community sees its own successes. Uh, and I would also hope that uh, the reproductive rights community help break the pipeline from sexual violence to the juvenile justice system that our girls experience so that they can exercise their full reproductive rights and agency. Thank you. I'm going to take the prerogative of the moderating chair to just try and sum up a little bit what I've heard today and what, what I want to see in, in four years. Um, it seems to me that um, we've talked a little bit, Malika has mentioned that we're talking about a new generation that, as you said, the Miriam or Joshua generation, in the, in the Obama presidency, and that we need to take a new look at reproductive rights, that we're looking at them holistically, that it's a broad a approach to reproductive rights, an intersectoral approach to issues, that yes, it includes, and we stand strong with our right to abortion, that that's an important part of women's rights and health, but that it's not only abortion, that the right to mother and to parent the children that we have is just as important as the right not to be a mother when we don't want to be. That, um, to tackle these issues, um, we need to do, we need more than rhetoric. We need to tackle the hardest issues, including sexual violence, inequality, both globally and within the United States. 
the importance of integrating our issues across policy initiatives over the next four years, that we need to look at economic security and health care and foreign assistance reform, among other issues, as places where it's important that a reproductive rights and women's rights agenda be promoted. That we want to hold our friends accountable that access is not enough, that we have a vision, and that we want to mobilize and engage new constituencies, particularly young people, to support us when the political battles are tough. And I want to remind us also that in addition to this being the 36th anniversary of Roe and a new inauguration, it's also, we're also celebrating the 60th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's been well established that reproductive rights are an essential and integral component of human rights. And in a new era and in a new administration that promises to take leadership on human rights around the world, we hope that this administration will take leadership on reproductive rights at home and abroad as well. I'd like to really thank our panelists. Um, and all of you for coming today. I'd also like to thank the staff of the Center for American Progress, particularly Susie Emerling, for putting together on fairly short notice this wonderful panel. I know this is a conversation that we at the Center and those of you in the audience will be having over the next several years, and I look forward to engaging in it with you. Thank you so much.